Welcome to another edition of the Cyclone Fanatic Podcast. It's football and random things. Back after a little bit of a hiatus, I'll bring Jeff Woody and Jay Jordan in here in just a second. A couple housekeeping things here real quick. I thought that this conversation that Jeff and Jay and I had was really good. It started out as we wanted it to be one thing. It kind of turned into something else, and we tackled a, a lot of different topics. But I thought that it was a, a really good college football conversation, and uh, just some stuff about the the world even as well. It's been a while since I'd gotten a chance to, to talk to either one of those guys. So we uh, sat down to do 30 minutes and we ended up doing over an hour. So I hope that you guys enjoy that. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to today's Cyclone Fanatic super patron, Josh King. Josh is a longtime Iowa State fan, thanks to his parents who have held season tickets for football and basketball for more than 30 years. He now lives in Colorado with his wife and three boys, but this hasn't stopped him from seeing the Cyclones whenever he can. In fact, his 14-year-old son Carter has never seen the men's basketball team lose, including five games at Hilton Coliseum, one game in Maui, and all the Big 12 tournament games in 2019. Thanks again for your support, Josh. As a reminder, if you're interested in becoming a premium subscriber, check out the incentives, including shout-outs and inside information at CycloneFanatic.com. And I'm telling you guys, like this is absolutely worth it. I think that anybody who was on our Zoom call that we did Wednesday night uh, with skip from the iowa state football program would would agree that um it's pretty cool you know and so and we're glad that we're able to give you guys more and more and uh, really be able to expand our our product here at cyclone fanatic even though you know obviously kind of uh uncertain times but thanks for listening uh you know we really appreciate you guys uh tuning into to these podcasts and um I, like I said, I think that this is a, a really good conversation and on just a lot of different levels. And uh, if you guys like what we do here at Cyclone Fanatic and you like our podcast, then please you know, give us a, a rating, leave a review, preferably a five-star rating and a good review. But if you want to give a negative one, then I suppose we, uh, we, we accept all criticism uh, and all, especially if it can be constructive and help us continue to make our product better. But please do that on iTunes and uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you, you get your podcasts. So uh, I guess that's all that I have to say right now. Uh, I'll bring in Jeff Woody and, and Jay Jordan. All right, welcome back to Football and Random Things here on the Cyclone Fanatic Podcast Network. I did a little bit of an intro. I didn't tell you guys I'm going to do I'm going to do an intro. So then I'll bring you guys in after, uh, Jeff, you have a different name for this podcast right now, though. This is, uh, what I, I believe sports health and random things, which, um, you can check the acronym yourself, but it is appropriate to the times because we have to talk about things that are involved with health and also things that are involved with sports. So it's sports, health, and random things. And you, you said to me that you wanted this to be the name for shock value. And I said, Jeff, I don't know that you need any more shock value than you already bring. I think part of the intrigue is what kind of dumb garbage is Jeff going to say at three <laughs> minutes all the way through the remainder of the entire podcast? Like, what, is, what stupid crap is Jeff going to think of and somehow manage to tell himself it's a good idea to actually say the words of? And so we came up with Shart. This podcast is Shart. It's the first edition of Shart. There'll be at least two more sharts that are going to be coming your way in the next month. Just make sure you get, you check your pants after we get done. You might need to change them, but, uh, especially once you, you actually hear the, think about things before you say them. <laughs> I, was just, one of us. I was just going to say, especially once you hear the sweet tones of our other, of the other guy we got here on the line, that's Jay Jordan. What's up, our brother. Hey, Jared, Jeff. Good to see y'all. 
Uh, Y'all, he's coming from Texas, if you can't tell that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling real country today, so you might get some good stuff. (laughs) Jay, what's it like down in the one of the biggest hotspots in the country right now? Uh, Well, it's kind of fine out where where we are. Um, We're out in the hinterlands a little bit in East Texas, so it's uh, spiked a little bit, but not not overly concerning. I took a trip to Dallas, and that was a little bit different, but – we're just like everybody else, mandatory mask and uh, social distancing, which is quite convenient, actually. I hope that persists in the future, especially <laughs> in like grocery store lines. And As someone who doesn't like people. Stores. So, yeah, I, I uh, prefer the six feet of distance. So, I think uh, I think Iowa is about the only place in the country that doesn't have a mask mandate now. What's uh, what's y'all's status on uh, high school football and stuff? I mean, I think we're going ahead as plans. I, I, yeah, I think we're practice starts like next week. Yeah, I, I think the big question, the big debate, isn't around sports. I, I think like as school goes, sports go in our topic of conversation. If I've kept kept abreast of the conversation, which is to say, I was on vacation all of last week, and so I have not been keeping abreast of too much conversation. But what I've seen or heard is. Um, you know, should we, how are you going to do schools and how are you going to do classes and elementary schools and all that kind of stuff. And then at, but as school goes, like if school's on sports are on. So how, I think that's the main crux of it. And I could be totally wrong, but yeah, that's a, that's a real up in the air thing down here. They just, uh, you know, with restrictions kind of creeping back in. So in the private school arena where I have one son, they're looking at a, a right now it is scheduled for just a six game season practice still starts next week or august 3rd but they're pushing it back into september or so with the full playoff schedule and then the public schools don't start till october no practices till september Hmm. so that's where we're at right now but i think there's supposed to be another announcement next week and i'll be honest i've been on a about a four month hiatus from all the news but um but i think that's that's where we stand at present i think that's going to change to the positive but it's it's really fluid, so it's kind of a uh, mix up with summer programs and people getting ready. Yeah, and and I know up here in the state of Iowa, at least we, you know, the governor came out last week and basically said that if you want to, uh, if anybody wants to not have to do in person schooling, then they have to get approved by the governor. Uh, and so basically, everyone has to go to school it, it, by the governor's mandate. And the un. The kind of crappy thing about as far as high school sports go is that, I mean, there's so little guidance on what they can, what they should do that when, you know, if your equipment managers, girlfriends, cousins, dad test positive for COVID, the whole team has to shut down, you know, and that's what you've seen a lot in high school baseball is where some of these people who maybe aren't directly, like directly a part of the program or whatever, they'll end up having to shut down the season because of the fact that someone relatively close to the program was uh, had tested positive and then the season's over. And, and which is, it's no fault of anyone of anyone's. It's just kind of like a, a weird quirk of the situation. But it, it will make it impossible to play high school football if that's going to be the way it is. If you've got to shut down for two weeks every time that something like that happens, like the scheduling will become such a nightmare. How do they keep going, you know? I think that's going to be an issue at all levels, don't you? Yeah. And that's, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like if that's what it's going to be, and that's what our, our thing, you know, worldwide or whatever countrywide is, it's just, uh, the, 
the two weeks, every time you got to wait two weeks or something like that, the whole team has to wait two weeks, then we're going to end up in positions where it's like, what if like half the country can't play for two weeks, you know? And uh, I'm not saying that I'm like against it or anything like that. I'm just saying, I feel like we need to figure out a better way to be able to do this to where we're just not every time someone tests positive, it's like, Oh, we got to sit for two weeks. We are on such shaky ground, giving opinions on all this stuff right now. <laughs> well, the, the, so I think this is a good transition, though, between what stuff we don't know about, between stuff we do know about, can conjecture about, which is there is going to be some bumps in the road. How, how are those bumps come? And I would presume, though, that the football season has some kind of something. There's too much emotional in, at stake, and I think people understand that, like, you can take our, you know, you can take our baseball, you can take our, our, our working from an office, but you can't take our football, like that kind of thing, where I think emotionally there's a lot that people are trying to do to protect that just because people want it, and also economically. So, so let's call, let's, let's make the assumption that it's gonna happen. Now granted, I don't, that, that's not a fact, but let's make the assumption that it's gonna happen. But there are inevitably during the course of the season going to be things that there are, you know, someone has a midweek cancellation or someone gets some, coaching staff gets sick or something like that. And there has to be some weird tweaked practice schedule. There's already a delayed practice schedule. So I think the thing that we can talk about within the confines of this weird, crazy shit discussion is which type of programs in the big 12 are suited to deal with that? Because there's not going to be like, there's always going to be an asterisk asterisk at the end of the season with like, this is the, the year where everything went nuts. But in coming from where my background is, you know, the whole CrossFit space is the one of the things that's fun about the the world championships the crossfit the crossfit games is the the participants don't know the events until about 30 minutes before the event starts and there's like 15 of them throughout this week of them having to do stuff and they get told like all right you have to swim to the end of the pier come back do a hundred burpees and then run a mile or some crazy stuff like that that you don't have any time to prepare but the person that comes out on top is the one that they determined is the best to handle all these situations and the kind of the task, kind of the, the catchphrase they go with that is unknown and unknowable is prepared for anything. So which one of the Big 12 teams specifically is prepared for the unknown and knowable? And for the first time in my mind, Iowa State is actually sort of prepared for this. Like we're, we're not, not necessarily gonna get caught off guard because of veteran quarterback, experienced coach, continuity and coaching staff. Like those three things in my mind are like the who what the glue that's going to hold everything together am i out of my mind jay or is that like a reasonable assumption i'm super happy you brought that up uh jeff that that, that was kind of where i was thinking about all this stuff too is is there so many program program level dynamics and in particular head coaching leadership that play into this type of dynamic because let's be honest football as a game is a pitched battle with many moving parts Mm -hmm. uh, the practice time and the consistency of that practice time is so uh, vital to the end product on the field and the way you would run a single play, let alone manage an entire game. So when you take some of that out, and certainly for that preparation time, uh, put it on individuals um, and their individual motivation and preparation uh there are certain elements of the game that can get out of phase very quickly mm -hmm. so if if it is out of phase if it is simplified perhaps um so for instance i think of offensive line play yeah. where where 
receivers run routes, quarterbacks throw to those routes, quarterbacks a little bit different, and running backs run run through holes. Um, the offensive line has to work as a team. They have to work, develop. It's like a dance with five guys getting coordinated. That time and preparation that has been lost or diminished is incredibly vital time. So now we kick to who has held that together the best, who has veteran enough players or motivated enough players to uh, be engaged in that, and which coach uh, has held his program and has adjusted appropriately. And I'm not sure exactly what the proper adjustments are. Do you simplify? Do you, you know, try to take advantage by doing some things outside of the box? But uh, which coach has uh, channeled his team and and program to be able to handle and jump over as seamlessly as possible that adversity? And I agree with you, Jeff. I think I think Coach Campbell is his organization level is part of what makes him special. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's special in our league, though we have other coaches that that I think, as we talk about the league. Uh, will be poised. It also brings things down to a base level of talent. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you've got less their preparation, you have less opportunity to scheme somebody It's a little more uh, and you've got a man blocking scheme and you got to go one-on-one and you got to move people out of the way. And um, so your talent level matters. Iowa state's in a good position there. I think, I think mm-hmm. the talent yeah. base is, is solid. The only thing that concerns me is the youth of that talent is some yeah. of that could have used that time. So, so depth may be an issue, but on the front end with the key positions, uh, I love coach Campbell being in crisis management mode. I like the quarterback and the general and his ability to handle that. He operates in that mode all the time anyway. And I like the talent base that's there to be highly competitive in this environment. Yeah. And so let's take the other side of the ball. So like the, the, the things that are going to be weirdest in my mind, are offensively, like you talked about offensive line play, because there's a certain amount of uh, coordination that has to happen with all of them together. You know, like like you said, you have to know, and we've talked about it, I don't know, God knows how many times on this podcast, right. that it's, if you're a guard, you have your center to your right and the tackle to your left. And they're two different people that you're comboing with and you're helping and, and blocking someone with. So you have this 330 pound dude that's in front of you that you have to try and move and then try and catch this 220 pound linebacker that runs four six you have to try and somehow manage to time it right that you get off of this 330 pound dude in about a four yard span to a guy that doesn't want you to touch him at 220 pounds and runs really fast you have to know how quickly you can release off of that 330 pound dude so that 330 pound dude doesn't hit your running back in the teeth so you have to understand how much help you have to give your center versus giving your tackle and the only way you is by practice and feel like you have to know what the strengths and the and the vibe of your uh of of your teammate is and that's where the continuity comes from i think the other thing on the offensive side as you play tight end is how much timing is going to be a factor because most of the time in quarterbacks don't read like all right my you know Tariq milton's going to be open on this play because i like his matchup the only way that that's true is when there's a true one-on-one like when you know that it's man all the way across the board that's when you can go okay um all right i like you know sean shaw he has a 510 corner on him i'm gonna throw it up to sean shaw like that's when you know that there's a true just matchup like one-to-one but a lot of times during zones you're not picking a person you're picking a spot and you're going okay 
you know, there's there's middle open, meaning there's no safety in the middle. Okay, I'm gonna play the left side of the field, and now that looks like the they're playing a true cover two. So the linebacker is gonna go drop seven yards to his left and backwards. So my tight end is gonna run underneath his face. I should be able to hit that tight end uh, at you know 2.5 seconds. Of, I'm gonna go right foot, left foot, right foot. Stick my right foot in the ground, drill it. So you're not throwing to a person. You're throwing to a spot, and the 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 quarterback knowing where he likes things is going to be a lot easier because then there are going to be certain restrictions that, you know, coaches can't be around for certain times. But if guys are healthy, Brock can coach these guys on timing. But the things that need to happen on offense are offensive line coordination has to happen with practice time and time. You have to feel that. And then with timing on uh, receivers, the timing on that has to happen on defense though. It, defense is a much more instinctive, instinctual reactive position. Yes. But the thing that you cannot replicate is tackling. Like you can't, you're also, it doesn't make sense to try and just do tackling drill after tackling drill after tackling drill. You're going to break a collarbone. So the best way to get used to tackling is to actually tackle somebody who doesn't want to be tackled. But the only way to tackle someone who doesn't want to be tackled is to actually scrimmage. Well, if there's limited practice time, you can't scrimmage. You can do drills and stuff, but it doesn't totally simulate everything. So on defense, so let me go back to the offense for a second, is how much, can your off how much continuity does your offensive line have and how kind of what is the, the work ethic of those guys to figure that out quickly? And then how is your quarterback a coach on the field who can, when there are situations that coaches are not allowed because a coach is sick or something like that, that the, the quarterback can be the coach, those two things on offense. Then on defense, you have to have guys that are experienced fundamental tacklers that understand last ditch. Because in my mind, the way I'm thinking about this, the way the season's going to go, there are going to be a huge number more of a broken explosive plays than there normally are. So like by broken play, meaning it's, it's not we're running 26 power and it goes right through the B gap and we're just running downhill. It's like we run draw and Brees Hall pops one out to the left sideline and just scoots all the way down the field because somebody got out of position like that kind of totally broken play because your guys are going to be out of position because they haven't practiced being in position enough. They don't know who they have to help. They don't know how to wrap up well. So there's going to be one or two missed tackles and gone. So on defense the it is, what type of second and third level tacklers do you have that can make things work like the correct mistakes to prevent these big plays from happening? And then do you have guys that can create messes in the backfield with that disjointed offensive line of the other team? Both of those things, I, I would say Iowa State has, except for possibly interior disruption guys, which we just don't know about. Like, we don't know if it is or isn't because we haven't seen much of them. But I would imagine between having Eisworth, you know, Eisworth White, um, 24, I always forget his name. Um, Miller. DJ Miller. So you've got Miller, Eisworth, and White, which are three good tackling. I would say Eisworth is a great tackling safety. The other two are good. And then you have line, the, the linebacking core, the top four linebackers that Iowa State has are all really good. So you have good tacklers at the second level to fix mistakes when they're going to be there. So I think on both sides, is the ceiling as high for Iowa State as maybe uh, Texas? Of course, it's never going to be as high. But the floor is much higher in the sense that they're gonna, their worst is way better than someone else's worst because the consistency they have across the board. I also think there's an opportunity on the defensive side of the ball from a scheme perspective to implement and be creative because of that exact thing. If there's a bit of disjointedness or there's a simplification on the offense due to the inability to 
get the time to do that, even if your tackling is, is subpar. And I agree with you totally. I think we just have to think about uh, Tylen Wallace screen to the house mm -hmm. to exactly. know that's exactly a broken what play. you're talking about. Yeah, that's a broken play. And, um, and, and I agree with that, that completely. But defensively, there's an opportunity to implement some probably higher level uh, blitz packages, maybe take a few more risks than you might otherwise take in the Big 12. Um, and there are certain coordinators who are going to be better at that than others. And uh, to help either cover up those deficiencies or to try to take advantage of, of a perception of, um, um, you know, lack of readiness on the part of the, the offenses. So all of that plays in. You've got maybe offensive scheme advantages are probably less just because of the coordination it takes. Defense, you might have some um, – on the defense, you might have some – scheme advantages or some opportunities to do that now who has the most cohesive program that covers all of those bases and some ability to adapt in game where what's your like top tier of the I, teams in the big 12 that have that ability i think probably tcu would be up there i would i would say you're Oklahoma, I mean, no matter what, Lincoln Riley could score 60 with a group of seventh graders. So off their Oklahoma, I would say TCU, because Gary Patterson is probably, I, I mean, if not the best coach, he's got to be second. Behind, maybe, maybe Lincoln Riley is those two, I would imagine. So TCU, Oklahoma, um, I would honestly put Iowa State in there. And then I think purely on a talent perspective, Texas. And just also, I think Herman is, can be creative enough with that. But in my mind, it's the, the three that are the most consistent, the least volatile are Texas, or excuse me, uh, uh, TCU, Oklahoma, and Iowa State are the three that are the least volatile, that are the most consistent across all those things. Whereas the ceiling and floor are different for everybody because like, they, uh, Oklahoma State still has Chuba Hubbard and Tylen Wallace. Like they, they're they got talent. They know where they're going. So there's no, they they could just give it to Chuba and, or Chuba and just go, hey, go run, do stuff. But like from a program standpoint, I think those three: Oklahoma, TCU, and Iowa State. Yeah, when you first threw Texas out there, I was gonna say, I, if we're talking about volatility, I mean, oh, it's super volatile. Yeah, just, like talent the, alone was the only thing that put them up yeah, there. The ceiling and right. the floor, like that one is mm -hmm. is kind of crazy. But that's like yeah. even with TCU, like. These last couple of years, I feel like they've maybe underachieved a little bit, but they're still average, you know, mm -hmm. like for them to underachieve, they're not going to be going two and 10, you know, but they're going to be going five and seven or six and six, or I mean, even four and eight, but competing in a lot of games. And uh, then you could also see them being in like they were last year. Like, I think they probably could be this year in the middle of the league and be eight and four or nine and three. Mm -hmm. Well, and they got I think, defensively, they're going to be good no matter what. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, I, I think they're, they're a dark horse just because uh, I think Duggan's going to take a significant step forward and his talent base is really, or his talent level is very high. Uh, he's got a high ceiling. And if he takes a step forward, that was really their problem last year. They played a lot of close games, just like Iowa State did, came up on the wrong end. And a lot of it had to do with Duggan turning the ball over or just not being sophisticated enough. If he takes a step forward, they got Zach Evans, five-star running back, head case, but super talented, um, coming into the backfield as a true freshman. And 
uh, to Valence Hunt, they always have some nice receivers. Defensively, they'll be fine. Some of their guys will take a step forward. That O'Shawn Mathis could be a beast. I think TCU's a real dark horse in this environment. I thought Oklahoma State was the team to really watch out for. Still think they are. Hubbard, Wallace, and Sanders are a deadly combination, and Gundy's good at scoring points. Mm-hmm. But um, And I agree, Jeff, on Oklahoma – the thing about Oklahoma is you have probably the best offensive line coach in the league. And you the have the most center one the of country. the more experienced offensive lines and some great talent up there to the extent we've talked about that as being an important factor. You have to look at them having an advantage. And then Texas is just they're just talented. And and frankly, Herman's penchant for being a little bit over conservative offensively probably plays into uh this season probably plays into his hands a little bit and may allow them to achieve. Well, and, and what I look at it with Texas is they have essentially Brock Purdy of the South is they have yeah. Sam Ellinger who is when, again, inevitably it's going to happen where you get this weird practice schedule where the, uh, the offensive coordinator's wife or something like that has test positive And because of university rules or NCAA rules or whatever, then that coach can't come to practice. So can the people that are there, can they actually do the coaching can they do the coordinating and saying hey you know taking that x receiver that's trying to work into this you know that uh, slot receiver is trying to work into the spot and understand where he needs to be with the linebacker after the play when the twos go in can that quarterback go over to that x receiver instead of the coach and say like hey you know you know, fill in the blank. You need, I need you to be a little bit farther than the, that dude's outside shoulder. Yeah. You need a little bit more leverage in order for me to drill that on you over there. And Ellinger and Purdy can do that. And there's, That's right. they're, they're the two most experienced, um, most consistent quarterbacks that have that type of leadership. Then you look at guys like Sanders and Duggan, which are super talented, but not as experienced. So they don't know yet exactly what they like and are probably not super comfortable telling everybody, this is where I need you. This is what I, where I want you. But between Ellinger and Purdy, they are. Then you look at Oklahoma, they have probably, I, I don't know, physically the most, the most talented quarterback but he's a baby. He's never played a college snap. Well, if, if he has, it's been like scrub time, but he's never played a college snap and he's going to have to go out there and understand the, you know, the speed of everything. And it's just going to be chaos. So that's going to be, a, I think that might be a little bit of a learning curve, but the thing that Oklahoma has to their advantage is the best center in the country. Like yes. with the center and what that does is that lets just like in the exact same sense that the quarterback on any given time can tell a slot receiver to go, Hey, I need you on this dude's outside shoulder. The center is going to be like, Hey, after the play, when the twos go in, the ones rotate out, he's going to be like, Hey, Tyler, when this thing happens, when that linebacker moves down to this side, this other guard or this other defensive tackle is going to slant over. So this left guard needs you as the right tackle to stay on this longer because we can't help all the way across. So he knows all five positions and what defenses are going to do so he can get them together quicker. And so again, if offensive line coach gets sick or whatever, then he can get everyone together. So I think that's the, the advantage that Oklahoma has is they have the quarterback of the offensive line. And I forget the, the dude's name, but he is an absolute monster at, at center. So Creed Humphrey. Think, yeah, Humphrey. So is, that's where you, those pr- programs specifically – and again, that's what the only reason why I put Texas on the like the fringe of that one is because of Sam Ellinger that he can coach from the field. Can I throw something out for you? What what do we think no. about Kansas State in that scenario? You're gonna have a third year <laughs> starting quarterback, and then the system that they play is 
I mean, Jay said it about Texas before in the conservative style and that kind of stuff. Could, I mean, that's like Kansas State to a freaking T. Like, this sounds like I, the kind of year where Kansas State could jump up and surprise a bunch of people. I was just going to bring them up, Jared, so I'm glad you jumped me. Um, yeah, that, that, that type of program, and Kleiman's only in his second year, but I think we saw last year that uh, his program is similar to the one that was there before, very similar to Iowa's. So two teams on Iowa State's schedule have teams, schemes, and uh, experience enough to make their very difficult but not quite high above the bar um, to play against teams uh, elevate. And I think it elevates those teams, makes them a little bit more dangerous, uh, just maybe just in the, the pure physicality with which they play. Um, my, but I, my, I would I would keep them where – in an ordinary season, all things being equal, I think Kansas State is slated for a downturn this year and not to be quite as difficult as they have been or were last year. Um, I think they're the beneficiary of some really good breaks um, last year. I mean, they were the worst team in the country in red zone defense. Horrible. And then they were the best team in the country in third down defense. Absolutely superlative. Um, there's a gap there that they – survived and, and pushed to a, a good good winning schedule but uh, these circumstances because the adjustments aren't quite as great um, the coordination is drilled in and is a, a a primary factor in what they do so I agree with well, you I, it's Courtney Messingham's time yeah team mess the <laughs> my my fear with Kansas State though is and the knock is similar in a sense to what Oklahoma State's knock is all the time, which is their offense is we're going to maul you uh, because we have a really patient offense. Our center, our quarterback, our, our tailback, we're going to wait for something to open up. Our linemen are going to be this far apart, and they're just going to they're going to move down the field. And we're going to find someone open. Their defense relies exclusively on fundamentals. They don't do anything on defense. So they don't have any capacity to create pressure creatively. They don't have any capacity to uh, put be in a man-to-man -man position. They're going to play like a cover two, cover three all the time. They're going to play every once in a while, two man under. That's it. They're never going to do anything fancy, which one, on the pro side of that, not much to practice. You can just get good at that. But two, if you miss a tackle in that defense, there's no one to help. So it relies on everyone being fundamentally sound. What we talked about last year with – or not last year, like 20 minutes ago with on defense, one of the things that you need to be able to do is clean up on explosive plays because tackling is going to be shoddy, at, especially for the first half of the season. Well, that defense is based upon everyone being able to tackle. That's probably not going to happen right away. You mentioned that they were the worst in red zone defense. Red zone defense is about fitting and tackling. Cool. Uh, I don't know. Did they get better somehow? Did, like, did they improve in this offseason with their capacity to tackle in space with – or is it just relying on guys ganging up and being in the right spots and hoping that you get the right thing done? I don't know if, so like Kansas State is gonna be a team that's gonna be really tough, but are they gonna be able to stop Chuba from getting 250? Like that kind of thing, or Tylen Wallace, or uh, the, the Oklahoma quarterback, or Brees Hall. Like, are they gonna be able to stop these guys without a ton of, I can totally count on my outside linebacker not to miss a tackle because we've drilled it a thousand times. 
Like, is that going to be the case? I don't know if Kansas State's defense is going to be able to handle the weirdness of this season as well as their offense will be. They're going to score and they're going to possess the ball, but I don't know how much their defense is. Like, I'm not super terrified of Kansas State because of their defensive scheme. Well, the way that I explained it, so I wrote about this earlier this week when I was putting together my, um, after I put together my all big 12 or my preseason big 12 poll. Uh, and they are going to be dangerous because they're going to win games against teams that are better than them because they stay close too long. But then I could also see them losing to teams that are not as good as them because they stay close too long. Mm -hmm. And like, they're not going to blow you out, but at the same time, they're not going to ever uh, get blown out, you know, and it's going to give them a chance to win every game. And I just feel like, like the vol it's, I mean, the whole season is volatile, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you have someone that's going to be like, all right, they're not probably going to ever get killed. So they're going to have an opportunity to win every game, but at the same time, they're not going to kill anybody. So it's like one team pops up, you know, maybe Kansas or whoever it is. They just have a good day. No, and, and you could okay. <laughs> not Kansas. Let's okay, go Texas, Texas Tech, Tech. Texas, Texas Tech, Tech or West Texas Virginia, <laughs> like someone like that. Like it wouldn't surprise me if one of those teams beat them. You know, I mean, yeah. I it, it really wouldn't. And I, yeah, I was Kansas probably the wrong, uh, That's not, the wrong one to throw out there. They would be so bad this year. Yeah, and they, they they did the right thing though, Jeff. They 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 went and they went high school heavy in recruiting. Finally, instead of yeah, trying to they, bring juke heavy JUCOs in. Three years from yeah, now, they're going to be okay. It's, it's not like you go talk a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> their, their goal should be five and seven in three years. Like, that's, <laughs> let's, let's take baby steps here. You're not, let's it not is. shoot for the conference title. That's right. That's I don't right. know, man. Les Miles is there to win rings, baby. <laughs> By the time he's 90. <laughs> he's got a great hairpiece, though. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what do we think about Baylor? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they got a new coach. And they lost so much on defense. And they are they, – the, they're going to have to implement they, an entirely new system yeah. with – it's Aranda, right, Dave Aranda? Yeah. So they're going to they're gonna have to put a, a whole new system in there. Now, granted, if it was – if they had a whole offseason, a whole spring – or whole summer, whole spring, whole summer, that might be a pretty scary team because – they got talent. They got talent in offense. They got a good quarterback. They, but they've not had a lot of time to work on implementing these new things because Dave Randa, did he not coach Joe Burrow? Like, uh, well, I mean, he was a, he's the defensive coordinator. Still, but like was there in the same, the same vibe, the same room. So I'm sure that he's going to be calling up LSU's or just asking or talking about the coaching staff about how to get Charlie Brewer to do similar things. But Charlie Brewer isn't going to be able to just like flip on a switch and become Joe Burrow overnight. No one can. No one can do that again. But like Baylor to me is one or two years away from being really, really good because they don't this this strikes them at a bad time with a brand new coach that they're going to have to pick up completely from scratch. That to me, it doesn't seem like like if this was a full offseason, Baylor would be much scarier than they are right now. Yeah, they, they lost, I think, either nine or ten of their starters on defense. Including with the defensive new, player of the year. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and look, he was he was the absolute impetus for their rise. Now, they, they got lucky in a lot of games, which is okay. And for those, that's, for that's those, listening, for those listening, that is their nose tackle. Their yeah, James Lynch. Interior James Lynch. defensive line player. Yeah, because Lynch allowed them to get pressure with three. Look, if you can get pressure with four in this league – 
like TCU does. That's the way their defense is geared and what it relies on. Kansas State, Jeff mentioned, that's what they do too. You can get pressure with four in this league. You can make headway uh, and win games uh, because you've got a, a maximum number of, of folks and you're getting some pressure. That's the ideal scenario to stop a high, uh, high octane passing offense. Baylor got pressure with three because Lynch was so hard to control. And we saw that in the Iowa State game. He was a problem. They would bring four. They would bring a delay blitz with the with the outside linebackers and some others. But primarily, it was Lynch wrecking people all year that allowed that defense to constrict enough and keep them in those close games and give them an opportunity to win. That's great, but that's a little bit magical. And I think with the new coach and everything that, that you guys have already alluded to, uh, the talent is there. They've got solid talent. Um but I think there's a slide back and I don't know how you don't have a slide back when you, you lose that many people on defense. And the, your go-to street ball guy. I mean, Denzel yes. was on offense was all right. We don't, he was there. Hakeem Butler It's like, we don't know what to do or it's third and 19. Where's number five. Let's just throw it up and see what he can do. Let's, let's hope that he comes down with something. And most of the time he did. So they lose their street ball guy. They still have Charlie Brewer, but they don't have that. Like, what was he, a second-round draft pick? Like, or, Yeah, he's going to be good, too. But, like, you, they don't have that, like, top-level, go-up-and-get-it type receiver. So Brewer's going to have to do all of it. So it, it, he is – it's Brewer, Ellinger, and Purdy. But the difference that Ellinger and Purdy have is they have consistency in their systems that Brewer doesn't have. So he's going to have to learn on the fly – and have to make up for the fact that there isn't a ton of talent that's coming back with him. Is Colin Johnson of Texas coming back, or is he already gone? Which one? Colin Johnson. Colin Johnson. He's gone. Gone? He was okay, like a sixth-round pick. Okay. Good. Uh, good. All right, last thing for now. Uh, they're talking about this plus-one model for, uh, for the Big 12 scheduling, where you play your conference slate and then you play a, a one extra game. In a perfect world, who does Iowa State play in their plus one game? Two Iowa. Goals. Okay, yeah. that one's not that one's off the table. So it's not Iowa. No, it can't be Iowa. Iowa so is just, only playing conference games. So it's just anybody else. I mean, basically, yeah. Colgate. <laughs> <laughs> Hampton, get revenge on those SOBs. Oh, yeah, man. there you go. Uh, I'm glad that you guys took this seriously, uh, but. No, I mean, I think that there's – I mean, these smaller you know schools like are going to have to get you know games. what I'd like to see? Yeah, who? Minnesota. Uh, well, okay, again, that would be nice. I would be all for that. And th oh, that yeah, this, but they've got that shut down. That's yeah, right. this, this creates a whole different thing to me. And I, I don't know. You guys can give your opinion on that. But this is why we need someone who is – or a group who controls college football as a whole and not just have all these different conferences doing their own thing. Because the fact that Iowa can go from Iowa City to State College, Pennsylvania, or go to College Park, Maryland, or Piscataway, New Jersey, or Nebraska, or Minnesota, or whoever, but they can't come to Ames, Iowa, doesn't make any sense to me. If we were going to really talk about the best way we could have done this, it was to actually regionalize college football for one year and have Iowa play Iowa State and Nebraska play Iowa State and Missouri mm -hmm. and Minnesota and do it that way rather than having people flying halfway across the country. That's a great idea. That's a, that's a hell of a theory that yeah. Florida is not part of the United States anymore. They don't count. 
We've been waiting to do that for a really long time. Florida is no longer part of the United States. We got 49. You know, we'll pick up Puerto Rico. Let's swap out Florida for Puerto Rico. We have 50 again. It's just not Florida. We no and longer then, want to be defined by Florida, man. <laughs> we don't want that as a stain. It is the skid mark of the United States, Florida. So they're no longer part of it. Then they're the shark of, of the United States of America. <laughs> 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 and anybody who's offended by that has clearly never read any news article ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, I don't know. So, I think it, I, regionalizing seems really cool. And then, yeah, we, ha, I mean, how far, who would then be Iowa State's, let's call it nine-game season, because if we're doing just conferences, then it would have to be Northern Iowa, to, like Northern Iowa's your pickup, right? Mm -hmm. Like, UNI yeah. plays as you're kind of playing, then Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Kansas State. Is that our, is that our nine? Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably even throw like Northwestern into that conversation oh, right. maybe, or I don't know. I mean, I, th I think that the, the nine you named there, would, I mean, if that was your 10-team conference, I'd be down for that. I don't know how I'd feel about having to play Wisconsin. That could get interesting, but uh, – I don't know. I mean, I think that that would be a that would be a lot of fun. I know that it would create for some interesting rivalries. Yeah, bring back the uh, the Iowa State Minnesota. If that were to be played every year, that would be a hell of a rivalry. If that yeah. just between those two, just because of every all like all the history that's gone into it, like the statue out front only exists of Jack Trice because of Minnesota. Like, no way fans are butts about it. So, I don't I don't like them that much, but we'll. And they get and yeah. it'd be Matt Campbell versus PJ Fleck, and who could complain about that? <laughs> it's like that it's was like my a, thought. It's a good versus evil, right there. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that would be awesome. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, I like the regionalization. Um, I, I, I don't like that we don't have some of that in our conference right now. And I mean, I live in Texas, so it's good for me because we're much more of a Texas team and oriented now. But. Um, but yeah, I think that would be cool. Those rivalries, Southwestern Conference. Yeah, go back to the Southwest. I mean, that's that's logical in in, in that. And, this, and there's a lot of people around here that think the Southwest Conference should rise again. But um, <laughs> the Southwest <laughs> will rise again. <laughs> was, we can edit this, right? Uh, <laughs> oh man, that, that is so funny. anathema to everything I believe. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that would be, that would be neat. I'd love to see those rivalries. I think Missouri's just a great rivalry. It's a good program. Uh, Nebraska's trying to do something and I'd love to keep them down longer. Jared. Um, <laughs> I don't know why they'd take a personal shot at me. Well, I didn't you mean it as a personal you shot. It's just, uh, they, they, they got over on us for so long. It'd be nice to have a shot to do the same. So, yeah, it makes sense that they'd get bad right after uh, all the Big 12 teams they used to beat up on couldn't beat up on them then. Now, so yeah, what's so that? Go ahead. Who is the South, the new Southwest Conference then? Texas Tech. I mean, it'd be like the original one, basically. Baylor, SMU, TCU, mm -hmm. Arkansas, Rice. Right. Are we putting Rice in there? Or are we going to go Oklahoma, Oklahoma State? I was going to say, you could probably go with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably better. Did you say Houston? And then Houston. Or uh, Houston over yeah. Rice. Yeah. Rice would just get 
drilled. Could you imagine Rice's schedule being like, all right, you go to Oklahoma, then you go to Texas, and then you host Oklahoma State, and then you host Baylor, and then you're going to go on the road to Houston, and then you have to go to Arkansas. Like, could you imagine that just hell of a schedule? And then I the mean, L- they, they, it would be the same thing that happens to Kansas in the Big 12. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just being Poor realistic. Kansas. I don't know. <laughs> Man, Kansas beats everybody in basketball every year. I don't feel bad for Kansas. Sorry. Sorry you guys can't be good at football. You only won 15 Big 12 titles in a row in basketball. <laughs> their, their, their program would be an interesting study. Because how, how in the world did Mangino get them doing what they did? Because Mark Mangino is a freaking genius. That's how. He's the man no, genius. No. Nope. That's... That's not a. That's not true. That's not a thing. (laughs) It's all Todd Reesing. Yeah, Todd Reesing, man. Well, maybe it was, but that the you know even back in the ancient days uh, when I donned a leather helmet, you know they were decent, and Glenn Mason had a decent run there. Um, so I don't I don't know how they've fallen off so far, or they just got hammered when the arms when the facilities race. Uh, jumped into big play. I, I don't know if that's what did it or what, but it seems like they shouldn't be quite as bad as they are. Well, they just started, like the Kansas study is an interesting one in coach buyouts. Like, yeah, because they, they got rid of Mangino and they replaced Mangino uh, right away with Turner Gill. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because wasn't it's it Turner, Turner Gill and then Charlie Weiss? Turner Gill right away, then Charlie Weiss. And then they bounced around between like three different coaches in three years or something like that, like a, a right away. Um, and then David and then Beatty came in, but like between Turner Gill and Charlie Weiss, they hired and fired each one of those guys in like a year and a half a piece. And they had to pay each one of their buyouts. So like they're staffed, they're short staffed already just because they can't, you can't pay three head coaching salaries at the same time and also pay bill self $14,000 every second. So you have to somehow have money to pay everybody and they didn't have the money to pay everybody. So they got the short end of the stick on facilities because they couldn't build facilities. So they shot themselves in the foot by making two really terrible hires and then structuring the contracts really terribly for those terrible hires. And now they're just having to dig out from the rubble underneath of where they usually, or where they, should have should where they put themselves by making those two really bad hires. It was you really. Know, I think that. Go ahead. Uh, I was. I was just going to say really quick. Then you can talk. But uh, it was yeah. really funny yesterday. They were doing the Senate hearings on the name, image, and likeness uh, bill or whatever they're trying to do in the Senate that the NCAA mm-hmm. is going going to Capitol Hill. I think it was Lindsey Graham said something about how coaches don't get paid to lose. Uh, and and immediately <laughs> I thought of Charlie Weiss. I was like, Charlie Weiss does. I was like, yo, Charlie Weiss got paid to. He's still getting paid to lose, I think. And I don't think he's even coaching anymore. He didn't have to. Dude's getting like thirty million dollars for to. You are so bad at your job. We're gonna pay you thirty million dollars to get away and never do it again. <laughs> you get exactly paid to either happened. be bad at your job or you get paid to just go away and not talk anymore, which is how uh, how some other places handle things. I I was, I was going to say just from an administrative standpoint, Jeff's point is, is really well taken is, is who's making all those hires your AD. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where Iowa state, I think has had such a, I mean, I mean, it's been talked about ad nauseum how, how good Jamie Pollard has been, but uh, I think his uh, 
intuition and ability to take not, not only the football program, but the other programs uh, as well and lead us into uh, and realizing how important those coaching hires are the type of person he was really maybe the first Iowa state AD to identify it's about the type of coach as opposed to the necessarily the high level qualifications of the coach or the, um, you know, buzz around of a, a coach. And I think he's, he's put into place very purposefully um, the type of people that fit where Iowa state's um, reach and volume of wins can be maximized. And I, we're, I think we're very fortunate to have him in that position so that we Jamie don't Pollard, shout out Jamie Pollard, shout, yeah. shout out to, to shout out to director Pollard. He's been awesome. If uh, I said this on a radio interview, I did at one point, uh, if there's, there's really no winners or losers. I mean, there's a lot of losers, I guess, in this entire scenario of with the coronavirus and all that stuff. But if we were going to pick someone who's been a winner, I think that Jimmy Pollard is one of them with how well he has been able to lead the athletic department during all of this. Well, and I think the great thing that, and, and just while we're talking about Paul, the thing that I really appreciate is that there is very little political BS that exists with J.B. Pollard. I mean, there has to be, I would imagine, just a teeny bit of understanding, like, between working with athletic directors and whatever. But, like, there's no, you know where exactly where you stand because, like, he came out with that whole article post saying, like, this is what our budget is. This is what it, this is what we need, and this is how it has to happen. Here you go. Like, these are the facts. This is what, this is what I deal with. And it's not saying, like, not trying to just sit behind a pulpit and go, like, just trust me, everything's going to be fine. It's like, this is what I'm doing. This is how we have to deal with it, and this is what's going on. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that's one of those honesty is the best policy thing. And that's kind of what he always abides by. And then also another, I think this first time we've farted or sharded in a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they to, come together. <laughs> sometimes you think you're getting a fart and you get a shard. Is there, are they going to be labeled as fart or shard? Uh, I'll, I'll probably <laughs> label it as a fart. I, does, I'm just going to be, does honest. the fart grow into the shard or is it a joint effort? Are they, are they disparate, mutually uh, separate? You can first we farted and then we just got a little too ambitious <laughs> with letting your gas out and it you know it turned into a shark. I just tried to hold on too long. Yeah. Okay, but the, the, this is really the last thing I'm going to ask you guys about and then I'll let oh, you go because I know you both have real jobs. I'm, uh, I'm having more fun now. Oh yeah, believe me, I'm having I'm having more fun too. Uh but this is the first time I've talked to you guys since uh, everything that's happened at at the University of Iowa and you guys both were people who were in locker rooms. Uh, so kind of a two-part question, I guess. But, like, were you at all surprised to see this stuff? And then how how did you ever see – I don't know. What's the locker room dynamic like, I guess, in, in your minds? And how do you guys see that as former players coming from well, scenarios like that? Okay, so first of all, you have to identify that you're talking to two white players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that matters. Yeah. So, so I, I'll, yeah, coming from that vantage point, there are there's a couple things that are truths that are unquestioned truths that I think the difficulty in an athletics environment, specifically in football, um, with dealing with things that are sensitive topics, are that specifically coming from a strength coach, because I think that's where the root of this was. And then it kind of grew out from that, um, which was like the main issue that was taken was with the treatment from the strength staff 
towards the players. And then it was kind of included beyond that. And obviously that comes from the top down, but like the, the, the main point coming out was the strength staff. So the difficulty that, so I don't want to say like, this isn't, this isn't necessarily the locker room, but this is the weight room. And like there, there'll be a, a slight little language thing. So if people you're listening with, like with kids, there's just so you know, like, um, when you are in a strength room, your strength lo- or a weight room, the strength coach's job is to make you uncomfortable. Like it, it's not to make you like, yes, it's to make you stronger, but it's physical strength is one part of it and mental strength is the other part of it. And so their job is to push you to a point where you don't want to go anymore. And then you realize okay in that point and then you go farther like that's the intended goal so like when you're that's why a lot of times strength coaches it can get away with a lot more volume not necessarily what they're saying but like it, it purely from a volume standpoint like screaming at, like making noise at that level makes people feel uncomfortable so that type of intensity and that type of, of presence is their job so when you are uncomfortable by pushing back at all towards that that goal that makes you seem like a pussy. And if you are pushing back at all to a strength coach, then that you're the one that's in the wrong. Now, that's sort of the vibe that a player gets. So like if I am feeling uncomfortable with what the strength coach is saying and they're screaming at me and saying, do this more, do this more, do this better, do this better. And you say, I can't, or please stop talking to me like that then you are not receiving their pushing towards being more mentally strong. And again, this is the vibe that's out there. I'm not saying this is the correct way, but this is the vibe that's out there. So if they do say something, you're pretty much expected to take it because it's their job to make you uncomfortable. So it makes sense that this could have gone on for as long as it did, if in fact that was as bad as it was said, which I, where there's smoke, there's fire. So if it's gone on for 15, 18 years, 20 years, or whatever it is, with you know people saying, look, how, how was this not reported before, is if I'm told that I'm supposed to accept something from a person who's meant to make me feel uncomfortable, me feeling uncomfortable is, is their intended goal. So as soon as someone says, again, so let's take it back the other way, if a strength coach says, more specifically, um, you are being soft, you are, you should try harder. That's a completely acceptable thing. Like that's because it's talking about the state of the person in the action. If it, if the the person says you are soft, then that's talking about the person themselves. So if you start talking about the individual, that's when that kind of the coach should, the coach should not be in that space of talking about the individual as an individual. But sometimes with going for so long unchecked, because again, reframing in the first sense that you are as a player are not really allowed to talk back where if that if you let's say that same thing of you are being soft and you talk back to the coach and say i'm not being soft you're being mean then you are in the wrong in that context like in a football context you can't talk back to a coach like that so without being able to talk back and get feedback on what you're saying is inappropriate it makes sense that that could have gone on for so long so if the things that are being said become racial by that coach trying to make someone feel uncomfortable and no one's able to talk back and say this, Hey, you're making me feel uncomfortable. Then that can foster an environment where that coach feels like what he's saying is okay. Because again, a strength coach is impervious to feedback from a, from a person in them saying, Hey, what you said made me feel uncomfortable. Because if they say that, then the, the player is wrong 
by being soft, not by not being tough enough to handle the criticism of the of the coach. So I, I mean, it was a little bit convoluted, but the, the 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 crux of it is there is a lot of top-down dynamics in a football program that what there there are some intended pushing. It just has to be appropriate, and what they're doing can't be based on the person. It has to be based on the actions of the person, and I don't think that was going on on the on at the University of Iowa, I think they were basing a lot of this pushing on the people and not on the actions of the people. Does that, am I clear as mud on that? Yeah. No, yeah, that makes sense. Well, the, and, and, and the truth is it's an incredibly diverse and um, difficult topic, and it causes you to have to confront a lot of realities and, and do soul searching. But, but let's, let's, if we talk about the locker room dynamics and whether or not it's a surprise that there would be um, racial tension or overtones to all of the very critical and well-stated um, factors that, that Jeff has, has just laid out, uh, the answer is yes. I mean, you're looking at 120 kids in a locker room. You're looking at, you know, that much or more in support staff and then they're all under the authority of about 10 to 15 guys and if you don't think that there are personal relationships or that it is a meritocracy in total with regard to playing time training habits whether or not you stay at that school um, what occurs in the in the off-season conditioning and in practice then you're wrong because mm -hmm. it is there's a huge personal element and your ability to get along with your coaches uh they are prone to have favorites just like anybody else and that that cuts across uh racial lines to some degree uh, but to the extent that that is allowed to have a basis like that and, and some of the things that one of the things jeff said is, is about using those words in a certain context and taking it too far I mean, we have an insidious culture in this country uh, where certain things have been deemed acceptable, even though they are far over the line. And I think when you hear some of the, the vitriol from the former players and you read some of the rather heartbreaking stories, I don't know about Jeff's team because I wasn't on it. I know my teams. And, yeah, they're, they're just – things you see uh, you know one of the defenses to that for an Iowa fan would be well that happens in every program and I have no doubts because it happens in society mm -hmm. it happens at every level it happens in the workplace it happens on the streets and and you know part of what we're trying to deal with is to give voice to those who do not have a voice and that's what you see that's why there was such a or my my look this is just me talking and I'm talking authoritatively about something that I'm um, not an authority on, but um, but you see a rising up and a crying out and an opportunity to tell a story that uh, is otherwise suppressed, shifted under, mm -hmm. made clouded over with a um, either you know, you don't deserve, you're not in a position to be able to do that. You don't deserve to have that voice. You're too young. Uh, you're supposed to do what you're told. Uh, and this macho cultural ethic that exists in football and really in all sports that uh, can allow this stuff to grow and fester even under the nose of an otherwise innocent and perfectly acceptable coach. 
or, or staff. It happens, but it happens, uh, I think, more consciously than unconsciously. And, and, you know, maybe I'm way, well, I probably am way out of the limb, so I'll just stay out there because I'm comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with the fact that I was a white player with a lot of black teammates um, and that they had experiences that where they could relate to the Iowa players. I'm comfortable with that, and I'm ashamed a little bit that I didn't say more and I didn't go to them and try to understand more. Well, and so to – I think, uh, you know, that's just kind of where I am on that whole issue. Iowa's has blown up. Uh, could it blown up in other places? Absolutely. But there are dynamics in locker rooms and relations because everybody comes from somewhere else. Nobody's coming, or there are a few people that come from Ames High to Iowa State, but you got kids from Texas, you got kids from Detroit, you got kids from California, and everybody's got a different dynamic. The coaches are all from somewhere else. So everybody brings their own cultural biases and influences in, and then you're supposed to meld that into a team dynamic. How that gets done and what is brought in uh, is, is a, a, a really interesting melting pot, but also prone to this type of, um, this type of dynamic, this type of uh, problem. And it really boils down, in my view, to basic human decency <laughs> is is respecting each other as teammates, as coach and player, uh, as white, black, as people. And that's oversimplified. How do we do that? I'm not sure. There's a lot of stuff that has to be done both on a, on a policy level and on a personal level uh, to deal with that. But it takes a lot of courage uh, to do that. And I'm proud of the players for standing up and saying something. And I think the incremental changes that we're going to see stemming from it will be nothing but an advancement in both football and society. Well, and, and to take it on the other side of this, one of the cool things is, um, and, and one of, I guess one of the cool things that is, I think in my mind, part of this is that a lot of the kind of pushing and act, like functional acting of sports towards this, um, not just a, you know, a, a cultural movement of like a recognition that there are, things are different for black people than they are for white people. Like understanding that that is, it's Absolutely. coming from sports because I was a running back at a division one program. I was one of two white dudes in the room and it was, I came so from Southeast Polk high school, which was, I think 16 black people out of like 1800 kids. And so I didn't understand a difference in culture. I didn't understand how, you know, it, lives were different until you get in that room and you're like, this is a different vibe than what I've been, nor, than what I've been used to experiencing. And it opens up the fact that the fear of something different doesn't mean that that thing is worse. It just means that that thing is different. And so like understanding other human beings, it's one of the great things in a, about a locker room that even though there are there are cliques and a lot of, some of it does go on racial lines where like the white kids from Iowa hang out with the white kids from Iowa and the black kids from Texas hang out with the black kids from Texas. But that's all, that's more just a shared experience thing. Like that's not, that's not a race based thing because you get a lot of, I mean, mixed race friendships, mixed, I mean, you still really good friends with a bunch of like my black teammates just because it's not a, a race thing at that point because you get to know the humans. And so like, that's one of the cool things about locker rooms. And that's why one of the, the things that when you see something brought up by a teammate, 
there is almost universally the teammates get behind that guy and not kind of say, shut up, sit down. There are some people, and we know the people in the locker room, that everyone, white, black, or other, would say, shut up, sit down. Like, you don't deserve to talk. Like, doesn't matter. There's, there are certain individuals where they do that, but, like, there are most people, because you are part of a team, you recognize, like, the thing about football that is that I think is, it's not unique to any other sport, but it's the most precise with any other sport, is that you have to tr completely, holistically trust every other human being that is on the field at the same time with your individual safety. Like, if you don't trust your teammates, you are apt to get hurt. And so you have to understand your teammates in depth. You have to understand their person, what drives them, what makes them happy. And if they, if you trust them, if you like them as a human, then it doesn't really matter what you have on top of that. It's just, I trust and like you as a human, therefore we are good to go. So the trust and get to getting to know someone is at a very intimate level when you're in a locker room that makes things a, a unique kind of compartmental, like a unique bond that doesn't really happen elsewhere because of how much trust you have. So it's been neat to see that sports has been a driver of this because of how intimately you have to know your teammates. And once you get to know someone intimately, you just realize this person is different because they're from a farm versus being from a city. And this person's different because they're black and this person's different from your white. No one's better than the other person. They're just different because of their different experiences, their different attributes. So I don't know, That's that's been a neat thing for me to see that sports is on the forefront of pushing this thing forward. So like Pat Mahomes and LeBron James being the ones that are driving it. So we took that from the University of Iowa outside of it, but it was, it's not, it's, it's cool to see that sports is kind of the paragon of what is, what needs to happen because of how much everyone intermingles. It's well said. Well said. All right. Thanks fellas. It was, uh, it's been good stuff. It's been fun talking to you. I haven't talked to either one of you in a long time. That's I appreciate it. Appreciate That's, you guys. I don't yeah. like you. You don't like me. <laughs> That's why we didn't talk for such a long time. I uh, last time I, I see, talked to I you, know. I saw you wearing a bright pink uh, bro tank green. out on the sidewalk. Green, green. what? Oh, bright green, yeah. Bright green. I I was walking. I was out for my daily uh, daily jaunt to go and get my Red Bull. I take a nice little walk, go get my Red Bull, and I all of a sudden get a picture sent to my phone. Uh, I, I don't even remember what you said, but you were basically the paparazzi were out. Yeah. Jeff was yeah. wearing a bright green bro tank taking a picture of yep. me across the street and i was wearing an iowa state hat and yellow shoes so i had uh red green yellow all over the place you had your head in a phone i was looking out and about and enjoying the scenery that exists you know like looking at uh, the rest of the world you're too busy enthralled in your phone not even i waved the reason why i, got, I sent you a text because you were you're too busy hanging out with your cyber friends you, you know uh jeff's got the world by the tail now. right now what and i always Jeff's got the world by the tail right now, and he's kind of slinging it around and slamming it on the ground. And uh, I always think about him doing that in the loincloth. But that's that's business casual for Jeff is running around in the loincloth. <laughs> that's actually how I go to most work meetings. It's just <laughs> loincloth, nothing underneath. Honestly, honestly, when we logged on here, I was surprised to see you had clothes on at all. I expected you. I mean, you come in to do the podcast in the studio, and you don't wear shoes. Like sometimes, I don't know. I'm, I might be shocked if you're even wearing a shirt. So when I logged Honest on and saw goodness, that you were not butt-ass naked, then I was a little bit surprised. Honest to goodness, I put a shirt on specifically so I could clip this microphone to it. Otherwise, I would have been shirtless. <laughs> <laughs> 
We need to get get you like a lanyard to put it off. on. <laughs> just a land. Yeah. Just a uh, no. Just a. It's a a really thin gold chain that I can just <laughs> clip this microphone to. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll uh we'll do this again next week. All right. All right. Sounds great. Yeah.